the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. We pray for wisdom, especially for the day that we live. Help us to be strong and courageous in you, not stupid or belligerent, but bold and courageous as the first century church. The Lord, we would obey all the laws until they start dictating that we cannot obey your law, that we are to submit to that which is surely contrary to you, Lord. So give us direction, guidance, and give us protection. The Lord, we would be faithful to you and you alone. We love you, Lord. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, why don't you just turn to John 14. We'll start there. The message entitled, Is the Baptism of the Holy Spirit Important? The answer is yes. You know, man is a creature of extremes, individually and collectively. You don't have to go far. Just look at our own generation. You know, if it's in fashions and diet and exercise, whatever it is. And, and they're just one extreme to the other. And when it comes to the Christian and the church, it's no different. Some are zealous for the Lord, but they neglect the study of God's word. Others study God's word diligently, but neglect sharing their faith. Some boldly tell others they are Christians, but they seldom go to church or commit themselves to a church. Some are zealous about the end times, and um, that is all they study at the neglect of the whole counsel of God. All they do is follow around different conferences for prophecy, and that's it. And some are zealous about the end times. Um, but once again, they, they, um, they're not even committed to the very aspect of living for Christ, but just knowing information about His coming. And perhaps the greatest extreme that we as believers can go to is to lean so much to the Word of God while neglecting the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The danger leads to two extremes. First, the result of dead orthodoxy, learning without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So Christianity becomes very academic, intellectual. Secondly, the result of being open to every sort of nonsense, that's the other extreme. Um, ascribing every sort of manifestation to the Holy Spirit and therefore confirming what the world says about Christians, that they're crazy. There's extremes. But the Word of God has given to us that we might find what is true and what is the balance that God has given to us. Some of you come out of different denominations, uh, extreme Baptist groups that don't believe in the gifts for today, that they cease for the first after the apostolic church. Others of you come out of uh, extreme Pentecostal group where they roll around the ground and hang, swing by their chandelier, stuff like that. And, and so every once in a while, I have to teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts so that we all understand what they are and what we believe here and how it all functions. Um, again, it's not my opinion, but it's what the Word of God says, and we move through it in context and through the Scripture so we can understand this. Now, some people reject the doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit because uh, it is abused by so many, and therefore their operation of the gifts are so weird that they just say, well, they're not for today, but that's not biblical. That's just their opinion. Others think that and teach that the doctrine of the baptism is obsolete as a dispensational um, experience that it happened only in Pentecost and then after that it ceased. Well, they have a hard time proving that from the scriptures. Now they can do it through case studies, through the church history, but listen to me. We have only one book of church history. It's the book of Acts. So if you're going to say the history of the church, you better refer to the book of Acts. The rest of church history, it's corrupt. Constantine married the church of the world in 312, and from there the Catholic Church came in, and it persecuted everything that, that opposed it to the uh, Dark Ages, and then where the Reformation came, and they had their problems. So I don't, I may refer to some events in church history if it, if it confirms the Word of God, but I don't go to, look, to teach doctrine out of church history that contradicts the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Very, very important. 
And so they object to the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet it came out of the mouth of Jesus and John the Baptist in Mark 3.11 and Acts 1.5 as we'll see. So I like to use biblical terms because I don't have to redefine them. And I stick to biblical terms, and that way I don't do that. One of the greatest attacks today is you have the liberal progressivism of the world, and you have the parallel, the liberal progressive uh, Christian of the emergent church today. They're both the same. They water down the word of God. They're not into objective truth. And so they redefine terms rather than using biblical terms. So... Let's stick to the biblical terms as we move through it. What I want to do is look at the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you uh, five vantage points that we will examine and show this to be true. First, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that from Scripture. Then we're going to look at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Then the pattern. Then the privilege. And we'll finish with the partner of the Holy Spirit. So five vantage points. We'll begin with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now... Jesus speaking in John 14, 16, and you know John 14, 15, and 16, the night before he was betrayed, he spoke to the disciples about the Holy Spirit that he was going to send, okay? Because he was leaving. So in John 14, 16, the promise of the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus to his disciples. The Father would send them the Holy Spirit, he said, and he would give them another comforter, verse 14 and 26 also. Another comforter, the word another is another just like him of the same kind but of a different number. Why? Because there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all God, okay? And by the way, the Holy Spirit represents Jesus, speaks of Jesus, never glorifies himself, never speaks of himself. He's the silent witness of Jesus, okay? We pray to the Father in Jesus' name. We never pray to the Holy Spirit, ever. It's not biblical. You pray to the Father in Jesus' name. He's a channel, and the agent that does that through us is the Holy Spirit. Very, very, very clear. Now, the word helper is parakaleo, wants to come alongside to help you do the work. It doesn't do it all for you. You've got to yield and, 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 and obey, okay? So it's a co-participation with them. Now, the Holy Spirit would abide with the believer forever, he says there in John fourteen sixteen. Jesus said in John fourteen seventeen, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. These, those are the first two prepositions. Keep those in mind. We'll get to them again. With you and in you. Okay? Those are the words of Jesus about the Holy Spirit. Now, the promise of the Holy Spirit has many synonymous names. Jesus called it the promise from on high in Luke twenty four forty nine. The promise from on high. Jesus called it the promise of the Father. In Acts 1.4, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5. Peter at Pentecost identified the Holy Spirit with receiving the Father, um, the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.33. Luke in Acts 2.4 and 9.7 called it the filling, filled or the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and when Paul received the Spirit. Luke calls it again, receiving the Holy Spirit at Samaria in Acts 8.17. And then Peter called it the gift of the Holy Spirit at the house of Cornelius, Acts 10.45. And then Luke calls it the Holy Spirit fell on them. There's the third preposition, with, in, upon. Three prepositions, we'll get to them. We just saw them, we're just making mention of them. So, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. You have about eight synonymous names that all indicate the same thing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're all synonymous. Now, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that it was to establish a new relationship from Him to the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, as you know, not everybody was endowed with the Spirit of God. It was secluded only to special people that were called for tasks like the building of the tabernacle, the furnishings by a holy Abba and Baziel. Uh, you added uh, for special leaders like Moses, Joshua, or for kings and for prophets. And so those were the only ones that God would sometimes remove the Holy Spirit from an individual. Um, but the rest of the people in the Old Testament did not have the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, we're going to see the difference now with the New Testament. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus described the threefold relationship with the Holy Spirit. We've already made the mention of the three prepositions. The Holy Spirit would be with them, the word para in John fourteen seventeen. He would be their lifelong companion, the one who comes alongside to do the work for them, ever present. Okay, The Holy Spirit is with the world, but the Holy Spirit is not obeyed by the world. They know nothing about the world. They ignore them. Then the Holy Spirit would be in them, in John fourteen seventeen. also, in them. This is the word E-N. So, with you, now in you, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. So the believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it could be translated the engagement ring in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. So once you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in you. The Holy Spirit, thirdly, would be one who would come upon them. Acts 1, 5. Acts 1, 8. Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, Tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power, dunamis from on high. For the Holy Spirit will come upon, you. Three prepositions, with, in, and upon. This is what Jesus called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5. Acts 1.8 are speaking of the same thing. All the eight synonymous names I give you is the same experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many people object. I don't object. I use it because it comes out of the mouth of Jesus and the mouth of John the Baptist. And I don't have to search to see what it means. I know what it means by following it in its context. Real simple. At Pentecost, they spoke in the various dialects, as you know. And uh, the people present heard them speak the wonderful works of God in Acts 2, 3, and 11. Many people think that they at Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. The word their tongues is regular languages, glossa or glossialia. But they spoke in dialects, dialectus, meaning each individual dialect, human languages, not tongues. For when a man or a woman speaks in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 2 says, no one understands and not even the person speaking. So we let Scripture clear up the interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture, not experience, not our denomination, not what we believe. The disciples were threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus, you know, in Acts 4.31. So they prayed and being filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word with boldness. The same word there, upon. The baptism. One of the eight synonymous names. Now Jesus said it was also to replace uh, the departure of himself by the Holy Spirit. As you know, Jesus had been with them for three and a half years. Now he's leaving. He's going back to the Father. Jesus would not leave them as orphans, Acts, or in John fourteen eighteen, alone. He would not leave them. Jesus would come to them through the Holy Spirit in John fourteen eighteen. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would testify and glorify of him in John fifteen twenty six and sixteen forty fourteen. So, the Holy Spirit is the representative of Jesus. He doesn't contradict what Jesus says. He doesn't oppose what Jesus says. He doesn't uh, exalt himself above Jesus. He, he glorifies Jesus. That's all he does. Jesus said that it was absolutely necessary and beneficial that he go away in order that the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment in John 16, 7 through 8. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you when you sin, that convicts me, that checks me. It guides me, directs me as we're going to see some of these things. It's the Holy Spirit that convicted you when you were in the world and you heard the gospel and you, it cut your heart to realize that you were a sinner and you called the name of the Lord and you were saved. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it was to empower the disciples also of Jesus through and by the Holy Spirit. We already made mention of Acts 1-4 where the disciples were to wait for the promise of the Father which they had heard of Him. So through the three and a half years, Jesus had kept telling them over and over again. John the Baptist made a mention of it also. The disciples would be baptized 
not many days from then, the baptism in Acts 1.5. Jesus was with them for 40 days, and then he left, and 10 days after, the Holy Spirit came. The disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon them, the Yippee experience in Acts 1.8. Very, very clear. So, there's no way we can mess it up unless we just don't study or unless we just are so committed to man's doctrine, man's teaching above the scriptures, what they teach. We're to be good Bereans to examine, to find out if those things are so. Acts 17.11 And so the manner by was that their example of life that is pleasing to Jesus and the Father will be seen by all through the baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.13 says that all things are open and naked with whom we have to do with. The natural result of a witness is to the community by their lives. Jesus said we're the light and salt to the earth, to this world in Matthew 5.13-14. You are the only hope for many people that will never go to church. They might be family members, they might be friends, they might be co-workers, might be somebody that God will open the door when you go shopping or you're just out at the beach or whatever it is. You are the greatest example of the gospel wherever you go. You are soul, you are light. So we're to give an answer to every man for the reason and the hope that lies in it with meekness and fear, First Peter 3.15. We're to be able to give answers to people. Why do I need to be saved? Why, why, why am I a sinner? How has this came about? Who's this God and where is he at? And if there's a God, why is things so messed up? We should be able to give them answers. As Christians. Now, Jesus said it was to direct his church by the Holy Spirit. Also. He directed Peter and John to heal the man at the gate called Beautiful. You remember in Acts 3, 1 through 10, right? Now, do you think Jesus never passed this guy up? Sure he did. He never healed him. But he directed Peter that time. And as they're approaching, the guy's looking at him, thinking that, you know, well, I'll get some bit of coins from these guys. And as he asks, Om, Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And immediately his ankles were strengthened. He jumped up, he leaped, he praised God. God directed Peter. Through a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, a word of, that gave him faith and a miracle. It was all at one time. Active. Directed him. He purified the church by his Holy Spirit. As Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about what they gave in Acts 5, 1 through 11. And, and they were stricken. Now, they weren't forced to give their money. God never required their money. They gave the idea and, and, and understanding that they gave all. And Peter says, did you not like to the Holy Spirit to God? Okay? So God's not interested in your money. Okay? So when churches start begging you and prodding you and pressuring you, get up and walk out. They take a Sunday offering as the Lord leads, nonchalant, move on. That's what the Bible teaches once a week. Fine. But don't let them give you sad stories or to crank down the screws on you. Forget that. God is not broke. I don't care how many pastors tell you he is. They're liars. He owns the cattle on every hill. He paves heaven with gold. All right? End of story. He gave the necessary wisdom and courage and love when Stephen was a preaching and they stoned him to death in Acts 7, 10. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He could have never done it without the Holy Spirit. I think of, of Jesus freaks and all the testimony um, of all the modern day martyrs of a, that Russian soldier who did, did not deny his Lord. He gave giving witness about Jesus Christ so they ultimately killed him. And the general that oversaw that went to his parents and said, I want you to know that he died as a Christian. Our modern days, in the 70s and 80s. Or the young girls during Mao's uh, takeover of cultural revolution that was beat so badly and she laid there and, and she asked the Lord how she can be used and he told her to ask the guards that she would go from cell to cell to clean the excrement so she could share the gospel with everybody. And she did that. Or the first century people that 
were martyred, those who burned at the stake, how did they do it? Through the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit, not their own, ladies and gentlemen. And if you think we don't need it today, you're smoking something. You absolutely need that. He directed Peter to the house of Cornelius through a vision, a word of knowledge as he's in Joppa. Take, kill, and eat. Not so, Lord. He said, don't you ever call anything that I call clean common. And he showed him how he was going to bring the Gentiles in. He called Barnabas and Saul to the mission field in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. God did that. The problem is too many people call themselves into ministry. People call themselves into the mission field. That's why they fail. I, after your pastor, I've told you through the years, since 1980, you go to God to see what your gifts are. You go to God to see what he wants you to do in the ministry. I don't tell you what to do. I don't assign you things to do. You seek the Lord and God puts it all together. He takes care of it. He guided Paul and Silas to Philippi, forbidding them to preach in Galatia, Bithynia, giving them a vision of man of Macedonia, and guided them right into the riverside there with Lydia and other women in Acts 16, 6-10. Do you think the Holy Spirit is necessary today for direction, guidance, and courage, and strength also? Of course we do. So, this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. All these things, very important. But thirdly, the pattern of the Holy Spirit, and as we're building on it, it'll make more sense if we're moving along because all these things are building one upon another. Now, the Holy Spirit is used for the new birth. This is called regeneration. As a foundational step for the baptism, you must be born again. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3-5, what? You must be born again. Now, he's a teacher of all teachers, and you, you don't know this, Jesus said? So, Nicodemus didn't have the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus was not born again. Simple. Jesus made that clear. You must be born again. You need the Spirit of God. The disciples of the day of Pentecost were all born again. In John 20, 22, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, they're there receiving the endowment and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans were born again in, in Acts 8, 12. Then they received the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. The apostle Paul was born again in Acts 9, 16, 17. Then he went to the city of Damascus. Then he, re- he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, as we'll see. The Ephesians were born again in John 19, 1 through uh, 2. And then they were baptized by the Spirit. So, first of all, regeneration. You must be born again. That is the absolute essential. That is the foundation. Without being born again, you cannot be baptized with the Holy Spirit at all. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is used to set the believer apart for the life of the Spirit called sanctification, or setting apart as the believer is a vessel now for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The believer is sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience and his body becomes the temple of God. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 and in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. The believer is given a new mind by the Holy Spirit in, in Ephesians 4, 23 through 24, very clearly. The believer is given a new heart that is circumcised to desire the things of God and to do the will of God, Romans two twenty nine, Ephesians 6, 6. Our life has been changed. We've been regenerated. Now we're sanctified, set apart for God. The believer is able not to walk in the Spirit as to not fulfill the lust of the flesh so as to please God and not be in opposition to God. Galatians five sixteen through 17, there's the warfare. The, the Spirit and the flesh, the old man, the new man. Ephesians 5, 1 and 3. It's a choice I have. Before I was a slave, now I'm free. But I can enslave myself by choice, can I? I can say no to sin now, but I can also yield to sin, right? So it's my decision. I cannot blame God. There's the old man, there's the new man. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is used to open the believer's understanding. This is illumination. So regeneration, sanctification, illumination. In order that the believer can see the wisdom 
of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and many other things to understand the word of God. Man is blind to the things of God until the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And he goes on to say that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, um, but we the believer understand all things because we have the mind of Christ. We used to be so... Far away from Christ. We might have been religious. We might have had some good thoughts about this and that. But we didn't know Christ. We were totally apart from Christ. Man is weak in the flesh. Though his spirit may be willing, his flesh is weak. Jesus told that to his disciples in, in um, Matthew twenty six forty one. So, in my own abilities, in your abilities, you can say, I'm, I'm going to serve God. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to this. But if you try to do it in your strength, you're going to blow it. You're trusting in yourself, not the power of the Spirit of God through the baptism. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What is it of that sentence that we don't understand? It's not a long sentence, not a complicated sentence. Very simple. Have you ever thought how simple the scriptures are? Using monosyllabic words, just two, three words, one sentence. Real simple. You ever read stuff that lawyers write up? You need another lawyer to tell you what that lawyer said. How about political bills? <laughs> if you usually think they say they're, they're for it, they're probably against it. <laughs> they're so convoluted. Man needs power from on high by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said in Acts 1.5. Man can only be godly as a witness to Jesus by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. You should be witnesses to me, not for me, to me. First, my witness is that I'm baptized with the Spirit of God. I'm empowered by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, um, the AP experience, any of the eight that, that I've, I've stated. The first thing is evidence. It's my witness to Jesus that he sees that I am living for him. Secondly, for Jesus vertically. If I just witness for Jesus, but I'm not a witness to Jesus, though my witness for Jesus may be effective and save others, I get no reward because Jesus sees the hypocrisy. You understand? Are we clear on that? There's a big difference. Now, the threefold work of the Holy Spirit of regeneration, sanctification, and illumination should not be confused with what we're talking about, the baptism. But I just show you the progression that regeneration makes you a child of God, sanctification sets you apart to do the will of God and to grow in everything else, and illumination turns on the light so you can understand the things of God. Some have called the baptism of the Holy Spirit a second blessing. Others, different names under it. I don't really care what the denominations have called it or history of man has called it. I care what the scriptures have called it. And there are about eight phrases. The one I like to use is the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's the one Jesus spoke to the disciples before he left in the book of Acts. And John the Baptist also mentioned it. But either one will do. The Holy Spirit is given and received by every person who's ever born again. Now, we, we must be clear about that first. Romans 8, 9. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, listen to me. The Holy Spirit came in you. Your body is the temple of God. All right? When you were born again, you didn't ask the Holy Spirit to come in you. You asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to save you. And automatically the Holy Spirit came in you. You cannot be born again without the Holy Spirit in you. It's impossible. The believer then is baptized into the body of, of the church through that reception of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen and Ephesians 4, 5. You aren't, you aren't incorporated into the church through water baptism because many people aren't born again. You're just a wet sinner. That's all. The true incorporation to the church body is that you're born again and you have the same spirit I do and therefore we'll call ourselves brothers and sisters of the same family. It's the spirit of God. This is a true incorporation. But... That's not referring to the baptism. That's just a new birth. 
Now, the believer is baptized into water as a public confession of what has already happened in their heart. Symbolically, the old man goes down under the water dead. You come up in the newness of life. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 7. But there's a big public witness going on to those around. Today, we clap at it. In the days of Paul, you put a bullseye on your back, you're a target. There's a big difference in time and culture, okay? Though it is getting a little more animosity, with a lot more animosity towards the Christian today in America. There is definitely Christian persecution in America. And anybody who denies it is crazy. It absolutely is. It's only going to get worse, but it's already here. Now, the believer is baptized, again, uh, into water, but that doesn't mean that you're born again. It's just a public confession. If you are born again, that you are born again, but if you're not born again, water means absolutely nothing. Um, Jesus never baptized anybody in water. Do you know that? His disciples are the ones who baptize in water. John 4, 2. Why? Because John and Jesus wanted to make sure that there was a distinction between both of them. You see, you can water baptize somebody in water. You don't have to be a pastor. You're somewhere and somebody accepts the Lord and they say, hey, can you baptize me? Sure, here, take them down. But you cannot baptize people in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11, Luke 3.16, John 1.32.33 and Acts 1.5, the words of Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, he said that there's one among you who's not, I'm not worthy to loosen his shoes. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's Jesus who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Men do not. We may lay hands, but the hands don't have no special anointing on them. It's simply a step of faith. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. You and I can water baptize, but Jesus never did water baptize. So there would be no confusion of God's baptism and what baptism man can do. Very, very clear. The believer can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at different points in their walk be it a regeneration or subsequent to salvation. So we've looked at the three prepositions. The Samaritans believed the words of Philip and were baptized in water. Then they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when Peter and John had come down in Acts 8, 12 through 17. They preached the word, they received Christ, so the Holy Spirit came in them. And Peter and John came down and asked them, have you received the baptism? What? They already had the Spirit in them, but not the baptism. Very clearly in Acts 8, 12 through 17. You remember Paul the Apostle converted there on the road to Damascus. Now when he, when he was born again on the road, he received the Spirit in him, but he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit until he went into Damascus, as Ananias lays his hand on him. And he also water baptized him in Acts 9, 17 and 18. The house of Cornelius in Acts 10, 44 through 48 was 12 years after the day of Pentecost. And as Peter was speaking the words of God, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were water baptized then. So there at the house of Cornelius, they were born again and filled with the baptism at the same time. So what are you seeing that's important and basic and foundational? You must be born again first. You could receive the empowerment, the baptism at the same time or subsequent. Okay? The order can differ as long as you're first born again. So this is the pattern of the Holy Spirit. Very, very clear in Scripture. Again, we have to go through the book of Acts to see this. Fourthly, the privilege of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the accompaniment of gifts at times. The believers at Pentecost received the baptism after being born again, as we've seen, and they were Jews in Acts chapter 2. They had all believed on Jesus Acts 2 is very, very clear. 
And the eleven had been um, breathed on by Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in John twenty twenty two. He says, and he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Then in the Pentecost, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Read John twenty twenty two. Jesus breathed on the eleven, the Holy Spirit. But Acts 1, eight. The essential for the church to be born and empowered was at that time. They all spoke in tongues, glossialia, in their dialect, Acts 2.8. They understood them. That was a miracle that happened there. The believer then in Samaria in Acts 8, they were half-breeds and considered so but they were born again. They were half Jew and half Gentile. From the Assyrian captivity, they used to transpopulate people and mix them in so they would lose their identity, their culture, and disappear. And they were born again. They believed the word through Philip in Acts 8.12, and they were baptized in water in the same verse. But they had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because when Peter and John heard, they came down to Samaria in Acts eight fourteen through 17, and they asked them, and they laid hands on them, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And there we read in Acts eight eighteen that Simon the sorcerer, hearing or seeing something, wanted to buy that gift. So we aren't told that whether it was tongues, whether it was prophecy, what took place, but something took place that he wanted it, okay? Now we're going to move on and we're going to see that the two most prominent gifts manifested with the baptism is tongues and prophecy. But we're also going to see that those two aren't the true or only evidence. They're simply in association with the baptism. Very important. The Apostle Paul, he was a persecutor, murderer, as you know, of Christians. He was born again in Acts 9. And Ananias was sent by the Lord to Paul to lay hands on him and to call him brother. That's a lot of faith. <laughs> Acts 9, 14 through 16. Because Ananias said, Lord, don't you know? Yeah, I know who he is. Just go over there. He's born again. <laughs> wow. Ananias laid hands on Paul and he was, listen, filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts nine seventeen. That's the same as upon promise of the Father. Filled with the Spirit, the upon experience, all the eight synonymous names. Same thing. Paul was then baptized in water. The distinction of water and spirit baptism is very, very clear in all these texts I've given you. Then you have the house of Cornelius. They were Gentiles, but born again in Acts chapter 10. And they were hearing the word of God as Peter was preaching, and the Holy Spirit fell on them upon a P in Acts 10.44. And they spoke in tongues and they magnified God in Acts 10.46. So you have an association now of gifts with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Ephesians elders in Acts 19, they were disciples of John, but they were born again. They were believers. Paul said, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Acts 19.2. Now listen, let's ask a question. People say, well, these guys weren't born again. Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the minute you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. You don't have to ask for it, right? So therefore, what he's asking has to be something apart from the new birth. He said you believe. He says you were born again. Did you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's what he's talking about. They were baptized in water for repentance after the baptism of John, Acts 19.3. They were baptized in water by Paul in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 19.5. And they were baptized in the Holy Spirit as Paul laid hands on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, Acts 19.6. So once again, what's the foundation? They needed to be born again, right? If you're born again, you have the Spirit of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are empowered by the baptism of the Holy Spirit or ever have been, right? 
It can be happen at the same time. It can happen subsequent to it, right? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for all believers who are born again. The Apostle Peter saw or said it was for all who repent, their children, as many as are far off, and as many as the Lord God will call in Acts 2, 38 and 39. So no one's excluded. The Lord Jesus said it is for all who ask, speaking uh, to his disciples. You remember the parable there in Luke uh, eleven thirteen. And such was the case that there, uh, there was a man that came over his house. He didn't have enough food or whatever. So he went to his neighbor and asked for some bread, remember? And, and the guy wouldn't, he's knocking on the door and the man says, go away, go away, we're all sleeping. He said, but because of its importunity, and then he makes the application, the punchline of the parable. If you being evil, he's speaking to his disciples. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He cannot be talking about the new birth. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in you automatically. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's real simple. You have to let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. The baptism can take place then by the laying of hands, and sometimes you don't lay hands. Acts 8, 9, and 10 show us both cases. Jesus is the baptizer, not man. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for power and for to be a witness to Jesus again, Acts 1.8. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event then, but a repeated experience for empowerment, for life and service. We see it in Acts 2.4. They were filled. And then in Acts 4.8, the same people that were filled, prayed that God would fill them, they were filled again. Verse 31, they were filled again. Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit of God. A continual present experience. Ongoing. You and I cannot afford to live under our own strength. We need the empowerment of the Spirit of God to live the life of Christ, to be His witness to Him and for Him. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit can accompany, as we can see now at this point, some gifts, the two most prominent, is tongues and prophecy. But other gifts can be associated with it, okay? So this is the privilege of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, fifth and last, we see the partner of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is empowerment. We've made that very, very clear. Jesus made that clear for us. Therefore, no one gift or any group or entire possession of gifts is the true and only evidence. I say this because this is what many Pentecostal teachers teach in Pentecostal churches. They say the true and only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Wrong. They get an F in the subject of Bible. Paul is very clear in Corinthians 14 that tongues is the least of the gifts. It's not inferior to others. It's the least because it edifies only you. He says, forbid not to speak in tongues. Pray that you interpret. And so, no one gift is the baptism. But we do know that when the baptism occurs, there are gifts that are associated with that empowerment for service. The command to all believers to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit would be impossible for not all have the same gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, 29 through 30. So if the baptism of the Holy Spirit equates gifts, then it would be a contradiction because we all don't have the same gifts. It's simple. But the reverse is true, that when we have the baptism, some gifts are associated. The baptism is for empowerment of service. The gifts are for the function of service, to do that work. Very, very important. Now, the one gift, as I said, that is taught, 
is tongues in 1 Corinthians 12.30. And, it, and it's wrong. And if you've been around Pentecostal circles, you come out of that kind of uh, Baptist, uh, four square or, or, um, or Pentecostal circles, you know, this is, that's their emphasis. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be accompanied. So we don't reject the gifts. We believe the gifts are for today as, anybody, as at any other time. They'd be decent and in order. They function every Sunday through the pulpit, through the ministries that goes on. But usually people always equate the function of the gifts with prophecy, tongues, and interpretation, and slain in the Spirit. There's only two people that were slain in the Spirit, if you want to call it that, and they never got up. Okay? There's no such thing in the Scriptures. Okay? Uh, I don't care what Benny Hinn or the rest say. Okay? It's, it's just not of the Lord. Uh, God has, is not going to knock you down so that people can just be looking at you and you're wiggling around like a worm. That's not going to glorify God. Okay? Do I believe God could put you down? I believe He could put you down. But if it's God, nobody has to catch you. God's not going to slay you to crack your head on the concrete, right? Not their confusion, right? Why do people behind Him to catch Him? It's silly. It's a circus atmosphere. Now, the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit then is empowerment for service. What makes a believer's service effective is through the fruit of the Spirit. So you have the baptism, the empowerment, the partner is the fruit of the Spirit. Listen carefully. This is clear from the fact that a believer can be used to do incredible works by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But if that work is not done out of love for God and love for the person, though the person may receive the benefit of that work, at the Bema Seat of Christ, God will not reward us. Because it wasn't done out of God by love. Are we clear on that? 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Okay? So, another reason why you can't equate the baptism and the fruit of the Spirit is the same. One is the empowerment, the other one is the motive by which we do things. Alright? Very, very, very clear. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. The word is singular in the Greek. In our English, it's plural. There is but one fruit of the Spirit, God's divine agape love in Galatians 5.22. The seven virtues that follow, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, are the various ways... Agape love manifests itself in action in contrast to the works of the flesh. So Galatians 5, 22, 23 is in contrast to what precedes it, the works of the flesh. Okay? Very, very simple. Now, Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaimed the message of salvation to those who had crucified his Lord. Think with me. God has just empowered him for service. What's motivating him? God's agape love, the fruit of the Spirit. Because if you kill my son or my daughter or a good friend, and I knew you were going to hell and the gospel could get you there, I wouldn't want to preach to you. I want you to go to hell. It's the love of God that motivates me to preach. My heart is desperately wicked. So I must yield to the love of God. You see, I know I can understand why God saved me, but I'm still not sure about you. I can understand why God could forgive me the sins that I committed. But you? You see, my sin on you looks a lot uglier than on me. That's our sin nature, ladies and gentlemen. Paul declared to the Ephesians, listen carefully, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. He says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, and he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened in in his might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted, listen carefully, rooted and grounded in love, agape, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the agape love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God wants you and I to know the length, the width, the depth, the height of, of God's agape love. I don't like certain people. I don't like what they do. So I have to ask God's love to look beyond that and to preach the gospel that they might repent like I did. That's what the empowerment is all about for service and that's why the motivation is God's agape love. They're two distinct things but they partner up. So that men who are lost and women who are lost can receive the benefit of salvation and that if I do it of agape love, then there may be some reward when I get to heaven. Simple. Now, Paul again told him, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. By the filling of the Holy Spirit of God, the empowerment, the baptism is the only way we can do this. Your heart will become bitter or better. It depends whether you are baptized with the Spirit of God. It depends whether you're doing the work or the Holy Spirit is doing it for you. Paul the Apostle says, Lord, take this stake from, this tent stake from me, thorn in the flesh. And God told Paul, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. For some of us, God will allow a certain thing to cripple us all our life. To make sure that we depend upon Him and Him alone. Because if He removed that thing, we would exalt ourselves above everybody else. Everybody gets humbled in life. That's your ticket for entrance to heaven. <laughs> everybody must see themselves insufficient. For salvation... And for the work that needs to be done. As Christ forgave you. As he's forgiven you of all your sins. When somebody asks you forgiveness. You are to say. I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. You do it through the baptism of the spirit. You'll be able to live with it. You do it through your flesh. It'll come back like a boomerang. <laughs> you see, vengeance never says enough. And vengeance and revenge and bitterness of heart only destroys you, not the person you hate. It destroys you, your joy, your happiness, and everyone around you. Wow. Not by might, not by power, by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. So the priority of the fruit of the Spirit enhances the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Agape love edifies others, not yourself. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Agape love is the motive by which, again, we will be rewarded. In 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15, the beam of seed of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the motive of the heart. Agape love never fails in 1 Corinthians 14, 4 through 8. It never fails. Every time I have yielded to agape love, I have always passed the test. I've always been joyous. I've always had peace. When I haven't yielded, I have failed miserably. Agape love must be the motive behind anything we do when we exercise the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Jude commands all believers to keep themselves in the agape love of God. Jude 21. Good advice. Paul told the Colossians, listen carefully. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on the tender mercies, uh, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, there it is again, you, uh, so you also must do, but above all, these things put on agape love, which is the bond of perfection, the belt that holds everything together, Colossians 3, 12 and 14. So you have the empowerment, the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. What a partnership. That's the way it's done, ladies and gentlemen. If you're married, ooh, 
You better have those things, two things going. <laughs> Otherwise, playing like playing football without a helmet, it can get bloody. The love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Spirit of God. Romans five five. Agape love is a bond of perfection. Colossians three fourteen holds everything together. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to be witnesses to Jesus. But Jesus did not say he, that we would be known by our works. We would be known for our love for one another, John thirteen thirty five. Yes, the baptism is important. Yes, we need it. We need the empowerment. But we need the partnership of God's agape love, the fruit of the Spirit, to make it all effective for everyone around. The fruit of the Spirit gives a true representation of God to the world and keeps our heart from becoming hard. And bitter. The greatest evidence of being witness, a witness to and for Jesus is his agape love. It doesn't come second to empowerment. Empowerment doesn't come second to the fruit of the Spirit. They're Siamese twins. They must be joined together. They're like cupcakes, like beans and tortillas, like peanut butter and jam. They go together. And so this is the partner of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're still doing everything in your flesh. And you get frustrated and you get angry and you get bitter and you, you know. Now, all of us will go through those things. Like I said, the lion's in the cage and he roars, fine, just don't open that door. To that case, don't let that sucker out. It'll tear you and everybody else up. The old man, funky. Dwight L. Moody said, quote, One day in New York, what a day. I can't describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred to name. I can only say God revealed himself to me. I had such an experience of love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to, uh, went to preach again. The sermons were no different. I did not present any new truth, yet hundreds were converted. I would not be back where I was before that blessed experience. When we, you and I, are functioning under the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that doesn't mean you do crazy stuff. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He's not the author of confusion. He doesn't make you roll around the floor. He doesn't make you tongue out. And I, that's man's stupidity. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the baptism, whatever you want to call it. And the fruit of the Spirit must be present first in my life. Then in all of us here in the church, if God's going to continue to use us in a mighty way in these very last Days of darkness. You understand how how you know, what a bad shape America's in the world. Do you really comprehend what's going on, or do you just put it out of your mind? God's on the throne. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of loving us our mind. So let's be empowered. Let's yield to the fruit of the spirit, and let's just ask the Lord to work in and through us. And then let's see the things that he will do. But he must change me first. You can't give something you don't have. It's like the measles. You've got to have them before you can give them. The importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is clear. Very clearly taught in Scripture. As we've seen through these five vantage points, the promise of the Holy Spirit the purpose of the Holy Spirit, the pattern of the Holy Spirit, the privilege of the Holy Spirit, and the partner of the Holy Spirit. So needful for today. Let me pray that God baptizes even now. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. And Lord, we come before you as a congregation first that you would baptize us, Lord continually as we lift our hearts to you, that you would endow us with the empowerment to live and be witnesses to you first 
than for you. That you would just overwhelm us with your love as we realize how much you loved us, Lord, how much you have forgiven us, how gracious you were to us. That we might be gracious to others, those that we hate, those that we can't stand. That you would do an incredible work in our midst. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I want to talk to you. You need to be born again. God, through the Holy Spirit, has allowed you to see your need of Jesus, that you're a sinner. He wouldn't bring you here and shut your eyes to that. Now you have to make a decision. Do you agree that you're a sinner in need of salvation? If you do agree, then you can call on his name right now and he will forgive you and save you and give you the Holy Spirit. And we want to pray that he baptize you at the same time. But only you can make that decision. Maybe you're over the internet. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name.